have your Bibles this afternoon, let's turn to the New Testament and to the little epistle of Paul to Philemon, which is uh, the, the last listed of Paul's letters uh, in the New Testament. There are 13 letters that are attributed uh, to the Apostle Paul, along with the book of Hebrews. Uh, many believe that Hebrews is also written by Paul, but this is the, the, the last uh, and the smallest of his letters. We've been going through this a little intentionally, just looking at some uh, short sections of it at a time. And this afternoon we're going to be looking at verses uh, 8 through 14. Philemon, verses 8 through 14. So let me invite you as you're able. Let's stand in honor of the reading and hearing of God's Word. We'll read from verse 8 wherein the Apostle Paul uh, writes, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But, Without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. May God bless today the reading and the hearing of his word, and let's join again in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, as we have opportunity again to meditate upon thy word, we ask for thy illumination. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, minds to comprehend. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our exposition of this book. Again, Paul is writing to a man named Philemon, who was likely an elder in the church that met in his house. And so he describes this man in verse 1 as dearly beloved, as a fellow laborer. And he also mentions in verse 2, our beloved Athea, perhaps Philemon's wife, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. And we noted how letters such as this one would be read aloud. And so we're following in a tradition today where this letter and others like it are read in our midst so that we might be instructed by the teachings of an apostle. This is a personal letter, and it deals with a sensitive, personal topic, and yet it's being shared among the brethren. Philemon's servant, a man named Onesimus, had apparently fled from the household of Philemon, and while away, he had apparently somehow encountered the apostle Paul, and he had become a Christian. And he had even ministered to Paul and helped to meet some of Paul's needs while he was in prison. And now Paul is sending Onesimus back with something like a letter of recommendation and a letter of entreaty on his behalf to Philemon. 
And he was writing because he was urging Philemon to receive Onesimus no longer merely as a servant, but as a brother in the Lord. And this was probably a very important matter because Philemon probably had the legal authority to punish Onesimus severely. And so Paul is interceding on his behalf. And aside from any civil uh, authority that Philemon might have had, most importantly, Paul was, was, was advocating on Onesimus' behalf on a spiritual level, that they would be, that they would be uh, spiritually brothers with one another. Paul uses in this little letter, just 25 verses, all the powers of his rhetoric as an accomplished writer. You know, Paul was an amazing man. He, he lived in two cultures. He had been born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He had been born outside of the land of Israel. Um, he had probably grown up speaking Greek. Uh, he had probably studied the Greek authors. He sometimes quotes Greek philosophers, as in Acts 17 when he says, as one of the philosophers has said, in, in you, God, we live and move and have our being. Um, in the letter to Titus, he says, as one of your poets says, Cretans are always you know, lazy gluttons and evil beasts. He knows these writers, but then he, he's got one foot in that world. He's got another foot in the world of the Hebrews. He describes himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He, at one point, had been a Pharisee, had advanced, he says, in uh, the, this religion further than many of his contemporaries. He could read the Bible in the original Hebrew. And so he was, he was a man that was sort of perfectly raised up providentially by God at this time to take the gospel both to his fellow Jews and to Gentiles. And so he was an, an amazing instrument in God's hand. And so in this little letter, he's using all those skills that he has his natural gifts and all the background experience uh, and, and writing this letter to have an, uh, an influence upon Philemon. And he's also using his authority as an apostle. We sometimes think of Paul as the 13th apostle. There were the 12 apostles who followed Christ during his earthly ministry. Judas Iscariot betrayed him, was replaced, according to Acts 1, by Matthias. And then Paul uh, uh, was called after the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And so he had been called, he'd been appointed to be an apostle. And so he's using all of his rhetoric. He's using all of his authority to urge Philemon to do what Paul believes is the right thing to do, the Christian thing to do under these circumstances. Now that is not to try to get a pound of flesh out of Onesimus who departed from him, but to receive him charitably and as his spiritual equal, as his brother in Christ. As we shall see, I think that one of the things we can draw from this little part of this letter that we're reading today is the Christian idea that we are called to do the right thing for the right reasons. We're called to do the right thing for the right reasons. 
Um, to recap a little bit of what we've learned from this letter thus far, we started off, uh, this is the third message in this short series, but we looked first at verses 1 through 3, which is the opening greeting. And we focus especially on Paul's description of himself in verse 1 as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And again, that was a term that could be taken both literally, Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this letter, and figuratively or spiritually. He was, he was beholden to Christ. Christ was his master. He no longer lived for himself. But he lived for Christ. Christ had the mastery, the command, the lordship over his life. Secondly then, we looked at verses 4 through 7. And in this section, there is what is called the thanksgiving part of the letter. And this was a, a convention known uh, among ancient letter writers. They would have a thanksgiving. And so, so it started off in verse 4. I thank my God, uh, making mention of the always in my prayers. And so he's, he's expressing thanks for uh, his friendship with Philemon. And he's saying, I'm, I'm constantly praying for you. And in this part of the letter, you might uh, remember, he had, he, had, he had talked about Philemon's reputation in verse 5. He had heard about his love and his faith. His love towards Christ. His love toward the Christian brothers. His faith in Christ. That he's, he had been justified by faith. And also his confidence in his fellow believers. And he also talked about that this love and faith had resulted in his enjoyment of all the benefits of Christian fellowship, of koinonia. That we're not in this, this, uh, this life as a Christian alone. Christianity is not Buddhism. When you just separate yourself and you try to get as far away and meditate and lose the world. Christianity is a common faith. And so he, he, was, he was reminding Philemon of all the benefits he had had from koinonia, from fellowship of Christian brothers and sisters. And also he reminds him of all the privileges that he had had when he had attended to the needs of the saints in verse 7. Because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. You've had the privilege of refreshing the needs, the, the great, the, the most heartfelt needs of the saints. And any Christian, any genuine Christian will, will be thrilled to help a fellow believer in their time of need. And so he had said all these things. And this takes us now to where we are in looking at verses 8 through 14. The greetings have been done. The thanksgiving has been written. And now Paul turns to the body of the letter. Now he's getting down to the nitty-gritty of the matter. And so he begins with this statement in verse 8. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient. In other words, he says, I could speak to you boldly. I am, after all, an apostle. I could use my apostolic authority to command you to do what is right. I could use that authority to tell you you must receive Onesimus and you must treat him well. And I, I could use that authority. I could be much bold to speak to you in Christ. But I think Paul uh, is also saying I don't want 
to have to exert this authority. I don't want to have to lord it over you that I'm an apostle and you're not. And this brings to mind uh, what the apostle Peter will say if you, if you turn forward and you look at, um, at 1 Peter chapter 5, famous statement that Peter makes when he's writing this epistle and he speaks to the elders or the pastors and in 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3, he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples or examples to the flock. And so I think that same spirit is here in Paul. He doesn't want to be a dictator. He doesn't want to be the Christian police enforcing the law. He says, I could be bold to speak to you as an apostle. I could be bold to do that to you, but I would rather, I would rather persuade you. Rather than have to command you to do what is right, I would rather convince you to do what is right. And so he continues in verse 9. Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he appeals to him, for love's sake. And this isn't some ushy-gushy, squishy-squishy love, rainbow hearts. Um, this is agape. This is the love that Christian brothers have for one another based in the love that God has shown us in Christ who gave Himself for us. And He says, I appeal to you, again, not on my apostolic authority, but for the sake of Christian love, the concern that you should have for a fellow believer. And so He beseeches, He entreats, He appeals rather than command. His goal is to persuade and to prick the conscience. We might notice that he appeals to what we could call soft authority. So, I, he's using his rhetoric though here. He, one of those things is he says, I, I beseech you for love's sake, being such an one as Paul the agent. You're not going to go against an old man, are you? I'm more mature in the faith. I've been in Christ longer than you. I have more experience in Christ. And you should respect your elders. I'm speaking to you about this because I want you to do what's right for love's sake. And you should listen to me because I'm an older man in the faith. And as I read that, if you just turn like one page back in your Bibles, you're in the book of Titus. And there's a great place in Titus 2 where Paul addresses four different groups of people in the church. And there's something timeless about this. And I think every biblical church will have these four types of people. It's going to have older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. And he talks about a, a proper relationship that should be there in, in, in love and respect among these four groups. Just look at Titus 2, verse 1. He tells Titus, who's a pastor, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. 
We don't just respect older men because they're older, right? I've known some older men in churches who were spiritual infants, even if they were converted. There might have been a question about that. We're talking about a genuinely converted older man. He gains that respect, though, because he's sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and sound in love, in charity. And so Paul can appeal to himself as someone like this. He also speaks to the older women. And by, by older women, I think it probably means women over the age of about 30. So that, that's, it's a big swath. But he says, aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Then he addresses, he's addressed in there also the younger women, how they were to be. Then finally, it's the younger men. Verse 6. Young men, likewise, exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he is of the contrary, that, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. So, Go, going back to Philemon, the first thing he does, using his soft authority, he says, listen to me because I'm Paul the agent. He also says you should listen to me because, and he is now also, verse 9, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And so this is a repetition of what he had said in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So he says basically, I think you should listen to me because I'm suffering for Christ. I've been in prison for the cause of Christ. And Paul is saying, I have some credibility because I have practiced what I've preached and when the rubber met the road, I did not compromise, but I stood for Christ. And so he's using here, again, what I call this soft authority. He has a bond authority, a chain authority uh, that he should be listened to. In verse 10, then, he gets down to business. Naming for the first time Ones Onesimus. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. And it's interesting that he speaks of Onesimus uh, in both a, a fatherly way and a motherly way. Uh, he says, I, I, I've been a father to this young man. I've been a mentor to this young man. And Paul, apparently, Paul was one of those kind of older, godly Christian men who was a magnet for younger men. And was a mentor for them. Look back to 1 Timothy uh, chapter uh, 1. And you see as he's addressing uh, Timothy. Uh, he refers to him as also a son. Look at 1 Timothy 1 verse 2. Unto Timothy my own son in the faith. Likewise in uh, 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1 and verse 2. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Look at Titus chapter 1 verse 4. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith. Paul, we don't know if he had any natural children, but he had many spiritual sons. And those of us who are men, we should keep this in mind, that we might have the opportunity to be a spiritual father to some of the younger men. But by, both by word and example 
uh, in our midst, our own children and, and, and even those who are, who we're, they're not related to us by blood, but they are by, by the waters of baptism and by the Spirit, that we can be an influence on, upon them for good. He also describes himself in a motherly way, whom I have begotten in my bonds. Paul had been used as a, a midwife, or maybe been, he had been like a mother laboring to see uh, Onesimus born again by the grace of God through Christ. And so, he, 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 this is his rhetoric. Take care of my boy. Take care of my boy who I saw come to be born again. And he continues in verse 11, which in time past, talking about Onesimus, was to the unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me. And so in verse 11, he notes the past baggage that exists between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus, who had deserted him, apparently run away, had at one time been, the English word is unprofitable, but now he's profitable. And that English translation, that wordplay between the words unprofitable and profitable nicely reflect the underlying wordplay in the Greek language because the word for unprofitable is a creston. A is the alpha privative, like atheist. Somebody doesn't believe in God. Uh, he was a uh, creston. He was not profitable or not useful to you. But now, the word he uses is he's you creston. You means good, well, pleasing. He's, now he's profitable to you. He went from being a uh, creston to you creston. Unprofitable to profitable to you. In verse 12, Paul says that he is sending back Philemon, verse 12, whom I have sent again. Philemon's bearing this letter. Thou therefore receive him that is mine own bowels. This guy is my heart. He's, he's someone who's in my gut. I love this guy. I'm sending him back to you. Behind this is, I think, Paul's desire, his Christian desire for reconciliation made between these men that, that amends would be make it would be made as soon as possible and he's urging I, I think uh, Philemon on in this he wants there to be immediate rec, uh, uh, reconciliation as he sends him back when you think about it, he's sending him back I want reconciliation to be made you're a Christian now things are out of sorts with Philemon I want you to, I'm sending you all the way back probably from Rome to, to someplace far away like Colossae maybe I want you to go back and be reconciled. And I thought about all the passages in the Bible that speak about the importance of being reconciled with a brother if you come to be at odds with them. Like, for example, in Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, if thou bring thy, thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. I'm, I'm guessing maybe when Onesimus, uh, when Paul told Onesimus, I think you need to go back and talk to Philemon. Onesimus might have been thinking, really? Do you know what he could do to me? Uh, Paul said, no, this, you're a Christian now. This is what you need to do. And uh, I thought about also when Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector, was converted. 
And there's a description of what happened in the aftermath. It says in Luke 19, verse 8, that Zacchaeus stood up and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And then Christ said, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. And so um, he, Paul is asking Onesimus to come for him to be well received by Philemon and for whatever differences they have to be worked out. We could say that this letter is a kind of permission slip that, that, that Paul is sending by way of Onesimus uh, to um, Philemon. And, and maybe he felt like he needed to send this permission slip uh, because he, he had kept apparently Onesimus for a while to attend for his needs while he was in prison. Look at verse 13. Whom I would have retained with me that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. Now in, in the first century world, uh, they did not have prisons like, like modern prisons. When you were put in a, when you were held in the ancient world, you were accused of some crime and you were arrested and you were held, it wasn't that you would like, get a sentence and, be, and live there for 10 years or 15 years and they would provide all your meals and things like that, your medical care. No, usually you were held awaiting a trial. And while you were awaiting the trial, uh, you were dependent upon friends and people outside to take care of you, like to bring you meals, to bring you clothing. Um, and it actually, in many places in the world, it, it's still like that, both for things like being in prison or in the hospital. This was years ago now, but when we were in Hungary uh, in, uh, in the post-communist era, when you went into a hospital, they did not provide meals. Um, your friends and your family had to bring your meals to the hospital. They didn't provide that for you. And so, similarly, here in the first century, Paul was dependent on people to take care of him, to bring things to him while he was in prison. And so Onesimus had apparently done this. And so again, he's sending this kind of permission slip saying, I would have sent him sooner, but in your place, he was taking care of my needs. That's rhetorical too, isn't it? He was doing... For me, what you would have done if you were here, he was taking care of my physical needs as, as an imprisoned apostle uh, for the gospel. Finally then, in verse 14, Paul says he does not want to do anything with regard to Onesimus without Philemon's consent. And so look at verse 14. But without thy mind would I do nothing. And he continues, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. Philemon, Paul says, was being spiritually benefited by the fact that Onesimus had been serving Paul's needs. And now he sends him back to be reconciled to him. And he's, he's urging uh, here... Uh, Philemon to do what Paul believes is the right thing to do, the Christian thing to do, to receive this man as a brother. But he wants to make sure that he does this, as he puts it, of necessity, not of necessity, but willingly. Paul wanted Philemon to do the right thing by Onesimus for the right reasons. And this would 
imply many things, including the, the right reception of, of Onesimus. Don't just receive him now as a servant, Paul would say, but receive him as a brother, as a fellow believer, as he'll put it in verse 16. But we could just meditate a little bit, I think, on the overall principle that seems to be coming through here. And that is, Paul is saying to Philemon and to all of us, do the right thing, but don't merely do it for reasons of necessity, because you have to, or for pragmatic reasons, because it brings you some benefit. But do it because you know it's the right thing to do. And it pleases Christ. This could be applied to so many areas of our life, couldn't it? Think about your life within your home, in your marriage, your interaction with your family and your children. Think about your interactions within the life of our church. Think about your life in the world. Do you aim to do what's right simply because you have to, because it's a duty, or because you get some pragmatic benefit from it, it helps me or it helps my family, it helps my children, or do you simply do it because you know it's right and it's pleasing to God and you want to please Christ? Do the right thing for the right reasons, Paul says to Philemon. And we might ponder and contemplate how that might be applied uh, for ourselves today. Amen? Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we give thee thanks for this little letter, often overlooked, that deals with how to handle a difficult personal situation conflict we know that we have not always handled these things correctly in our own lives we confess that before thee today too often we have let pride and selfishness get in the way but help us to learn meekness and humility and help us to be so desirous of pleasing Christ that we worry not about our own reputation, our own benefit, our own convenience, but we willingly do that which is right in Thy sight, what Christ has taught us. And so help us to have that type of spirit and attitude. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.